everybody. My name is Michael. Grateful member of Al-Anon, who studied theater many years ago, so I know how to approach that. Um, I am very grateful. Grateful uh, to be here. Grateful that that my higher power, universe, God, something for me to, to come into recovery in this community. Um, it's, it's been a, a lovely family that I have found here. Uh, grateful for a sponsor who very gently urged me and kind of tricked me into doing service pretty early on because that has uh, been a big part of my recovery. It, it helped me find a life outside of sitting at home staring at the alcoholic. It was huge. Um, and grateful to Rochelle for asking me. Rochelle was at my very first meeting which will be 10 years ago in November. I, I, I remember the night very clearly, and Rochelle, God bless her, came up to me afterwards and gave me her phone number, and I thought, that is really sweet, there is no way in hell I'm calling some stranger to talk about what's going on at home. But, but it was very nice, and uh, <laughs> I still see Michelle all the time. So, um, yeah, so I'm grateful. And it, it reminds me that 10 years ago, right about now, my life was pretty miserable. Um, my partner was, was on his way very rapidly to the first of many bottoms, and I was going right down with him. And from my perspective at that time, I thought that that was what my adult life was going to be. I, I just thought that was it. And I didn't see any way out of this. And my whole focus was just to survive. Which reminds me of our book, From Survival to Recovery. And I'm sure many, if not all of you, are familiar with the, the passage, page 267. If we willingly surrender ourselves the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives can be transformed. And that has certainly been my experience, and it's what I've seen in these rooms from almost all of you that I know. Um, our lives can be transformed. So, uh, my story. Um, it was the best of times. <laughs> You know, actually, it really wasn't that traumatic. It was, uh, it was a small town in Michigan, small family, uh, certainly a family that had its fair share of alcoholism on both sides. Um, but none of that was ever talked about, and the bad alcoholics were kept away from us, and the disease was never discussed, and the dark side of it, 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 just, it, it was just not talked about. Um, in the immediate family, my father certainly was an adult child. By all accounts, my grandfather was a pretty severe drunk. I never knew him. And my father never talked about his childhood, ever. Um, I do know that uh, he very possibly is an alcoholic. He stopped drinking probably over 15 years ago when he had some health issues. At which point, my mother said to me, you see, Michael, your dad is not an alcoholic because he was able to quit when he decided to without any help. And just a few years ago, my father, when I was home visiting, I, I was saying something about Al-Anon, and my dad said, 
You know, Mike, I don't know if I was an alcoholic, but there's a good 30 years where I drank every day. So, really, by that time, it's me, Alan, I'm, That does tell me that, you know, I, I grew up with alcoholism and, and a pretty good role model for denial and for making everything look okay. I can tell you that from a very early age, I had a low-grade fear of my dad and his moods. He wasn't a rager. Uh, I mean, occasionally some shoes, but, um, but he, he had more of a slow burn and he has a very deep voice and he'd sit in his easy chair and just talk back to Dan Rather. And, and we all just scattered, my brothers and I. And, um, I learned pretty early on to, to be really good and to, to find any tricks I could to control that mood. And if I wasn't successful, I just got out of there and I was in my room. And so I learned to isolate, just to stay away from um, At some point early on, I also, and I don't know what the connection is to alcoholism here, but when I talk about it, heads nod. I had a sense of being less than. I was in a small town, my two brothers were perfect. One was really talented and really smart, he was an artist. The other one was just gorgeous, like young Al Pacino, good looking, and very athletic, and both were very popular. And I was just little Michael, you know, kind of chubby and effeminate, and, and really no discernible talents. And, um, and I was just in their shadow and always just internalized that I just wasn't as good as they were. And there was always, and being gay in, in a small town as well. So early on, there was the sense of just keep your head down, get through this. Happiness is somewhere in the future out there. If you get through now, and you'll get there. And, and I carried that fear and that less than and that happiness there well into my adulthood. Um, so, you know, fast forward, I, I got through fine. For some reason, I, my oldest brother is an, is an ex-alcoholic. Uh, the middle brother is, he likes his beer. I don't know that he's an alcoholic, although my sister-in-law recently did share some concerns about his drinking. And, and I see my little eight-year-old nephew, and I know the disease is going to the next generation. He's affected by something that's going on in that household. I don't know why. Um, so, so that's my family. Uh, for some reason, by the grace of God, I don't have the allergy to alcohol. I can take it or leave it. I, I certainly, you know, in college, in my drinking, I smoked a lot of pot, I will admit. Um, but, but alcohol wasn't the problem. And it never occurred to me that I had been affected by alcoholism because it was never talked about. Um, and that never would have brought me to these rooms. Uh, I moved to Chicago in 1987, and uh, almost immediately I met uh, Jim. And let me tell you, it was the Almanac trifecta. He liked me, and he wanted me, and he needed me. And uh, we fell in love. It was, it was amazing. And I, it was, you know, it was perfect. And we started to build a life together. Within six months, we were living together, and um, and things were going swell until 1995. Jim became very, very ill and went into the hospital and was diagnosed with AIDS. At which point, 
I didn't think he was coming out, and neither did he. But it was it was that magic time when the new drugs were coming out, and and the doctors were able to save him. They took care of the pneumonia, sent him home, um, and it was a tough year. But they they found a, a drug regimen that he could tolerate, and 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 he pulled out of it. He did go on disability, and that is when everything changed for us. Uh, I he he dove into the bottle. He, he was waiting to die. And I dove into my career because I had to support us. I had to keep the stock from falling. That's what we do, you know. And our household income was cut in half, and I needed to pay the bills and take care of him and make sure there was health care, make sure that everything was going. And it was a perfect excuse to deny what was going on in the house. Uh, we didn't communicate very much, and and that went on for for several years, from '95, '96, and it progressed until uh, November of 2001, when I, uh, he was getting really, really miserable, as I said, and there was one night when, when he was talking about suicide, and I went to the medicine cabinet, and I got a bottle of Tylenol PM, and I said, have at it, and went to bed, and he didn't, and then the next day, I came home from work, and he asked me to bring him to the hospital, and I did. And he spent a week in a psych unit because of the suicide threats, and then he was transitioned into an inpatient treatment program. So when this was happening, my next door neighbor, who was a social worker, downloaded a bunch of information about AA and Al-Anon and put it in my hand. And she said, there is a meeting um, at 7.30 at the Methodist Church down the block. Why don't you go? And I made a bunch of excuses. And she, she was pretty... Uh, firm about it and, and convinced me to go. So that was November 23rd, 2001. It was the Friday after Thanksgiving. And that two block walk was, I, I remember it so clearly, it was miserable and I was so angry and so afraid and felt like a complete failure that I had failed in the situation to get to this point and I didn't know what I had missed. And I just remember walking there thinking, here's one more thing I'm doing for you. And just being resentful. And I went into that church basement, and there was five people. It was the day after Thanksgiving, the night after. And they said, keep coming back. I, don't, I remember crying a lot. I remember exactly who was in that room and who was sitting where. And, and a lot of what they said. don't remember a lot about what came out of the preamble. Um, I know they said to try six meetings, so I did. I remember talk about the 12 steps, and that made sense, because if he was going to be working those steps, I should know what they were. <laughs> um, so, he got out of, out of recovery uh, in time for Christmas, it was probably about a week before Christmas, and was drunk within 24 hours. I was pretty, pretty upset about that, but I kept coming to the meetings. Um, by January, I think, I, I had heard people talk about getting a sponsor, so I asked somebody to be my sponsor, and he agreed. And uh, the deal was that I would go to one meeting a week, at least, and that I would check in at least once a week, which seemed reasonable. I was already going to a few meetings, so that was fine, but making the phone call was really, really tough for me. So, um, just to call a stranger, and really, I, this stuff was so personal. What was I going to talk about with this guy. 
But I, but I, I, I called every week, and he kept wanting to talk about me. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that part at all. Until, but I'd hang up the phone in the kind of process, and I kind of got what he was like, yeah. What did any of this have to do with keeping Jim sober? I didn't see, but I kept coming back because I felt better after a meeting, and uh, and I had nobody else to, to talk to. Um, tried to work the steps on my own, and uh, that didn't work so well. But after after a number of months, maybe six or seven months, there was another relapse. At which point, I, I asked my sponsor if we could start to get together and 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 start working on the steps stuff and talking about this. I have to tell you, I am so grateful that my sponsor never once in 10 years has told me that I had to do something or, or for, forbid me to do anything. He's been very patient with me and to let me learn the lessons on my own. Um, but that's how I learn, you know. You can tell me plenty of stuff. It, it has to drift down into your feet to get it. And then I got it. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. So, you know, it's a number of months. And then finally when I asked, he was there. And we started to use the, the beige book to go through those questions. And I started to open up and to talk about myself. And by that time, you know, I started doing the steps. I knew I was powerless by then. Um, I was still a little resentful at those professionals. You know, I had delivered him to them, and they weren't holding up their end of the car. So I was a little pissed. But, um, I knew my life was unmanageable. I certainly wanted to believe in a higher power, in something greater than myself. I can tell you there was one meeting where I was talking about a crisis and a woman came up to me afterwards and hugged me. And I just hooked up when I think about it still all these years. Um, and she whispered in my ear, you're going to be okay. And for me that was like the first spiritual awakening. It was, it was more than a woman being kind and supportive. It was knowing that God was talking to me and that this is where I needed to come to hear what God needed me to hear. So that was like my first spiritual awakening. Uh, moved through the steps, did my fourth step. I had no assets. Um, so that was a problem. I remember <laughs> one of the questions was, uh, do I like myself? Well, my dear God, what does that have to do with anything? And really, you know, it was like a trick question. You know, if I say no, that's not the right answer for all these happy people, is it? But if I say yes, it's not really true. So I, I'm not sure, but I think I came up with sometimes. Sometimes. Um, eventually, you know, it, through my fifth, sixth, seventh step, I got clarity about that all of my, my wrongs really came down to fear and virtually no self-worth. Uh, and then I started to get that, oh, this goes back to way back years before I ever met Jim. And that kind of sucked, because then I couldn't blame Jim anymore, could I? So I uh, kept coming back, and uh, at this point, I was, I was in service. My sponsor had, had kind of tricked me, as I said. You know, he said he knew there was a way I could get better faster. <laughs> he didn't say what it was. And then a little later, he invited me to come to a district meeting and be a greeter. And uh, then before I knew it, I went to my first assembly as an alternate DR. And at the end of the day, I was chairing a committee. <laughs> and my career in service began. Um, and and I, I'm 
grateful for that. It, it, as I said, it changed everything. It kept me from staring at, at my partner and what he was doing or not doing. Um, then I had to start looking at myself, like, what harm have I done by, with my fear and low self-worth? Who could I have harmed? I harmed myself a lot. Um, you know, there have been, over the years, many, many opportunities, socially, professionally, personally, that, that I had passed up because I didn't feel worthy of them and that I was afraid. Um, I wasn't available for friendships, for, for family relationships. I, you know, the disease was so important, I didn't have time for anybody else. I needed to take care of what was going on and to keep that secret about the drinking that was happening at home. Um, work relationships, how many times, just because I felt so less than the gossip, you know, what does he do? Can you believe that she ran a meeting that way? All just to make myself feel better. I'm better than that, aren't I? Um, previous romantic relationships, um, you name it. I mean, all were colored by my fear and my low self-esteem. So, thanks to the steps and uh, prayer and little by little, those relationships are healing. Um, a lot. Like old relationships, thanks to Facebook, keep popping up. <laughs> and so there's opportunities to talk to those people. And um, kind of, do I owe you money? Um, uh, you know, and, but, and little by little. It's not, I, I thought that my eight and nine steps would be just making that list and checking them off. And it hasn't been that way. It's just been being willing and entrusting that those opportunities come up when I'm ready. And just paying attention and then taking advantage of the opportunities. A couple of examples. My father, a few years ago, I had a job offer out of the blue from a previous colleague. And, you know, my instinct, this goes back to childhood, really, you want me? Uh, but, but something didn't seem right about it. And I was talking to my sponsor, kind of trying to reason things out about it. And as we were talking, it occurred to me, this is something that, that you talk to your dad about. Well, i got to tell you, in 40-some years, I've never had that instinct before, to talk to my dad about a life choice. Um, but I did. The next Sunday, when I made my usual call home, and I talked to my dad about it, and who knew the old man was going to have some insight? <laughs> and, and our relationship hasn't been the same since. Um, just, uh, what a gift that, you know, after 40 years of being afraid of the man, we're now, we're now friends. And what a, what, a, what a gift that he's still in good health and we can enjoy each other's company. Um, never saw that one coming. And my brother, another one of my qualifiers, uh, I spent most of my life trying to have a nice, loving, brotherly relationship with my oldest brother, David. And it finally dawned on me in these rooms to accept and respect that he doesn't want that. And just to let it go. You know? Huge. The amend is, leave him alone. Who knew? So that's a gift. And then, of course, you know, my relationship with Jim. Um, as, as I'm going through all of this recovery and doing all this work and finally focusing on myself, the disease is progressing. Uh, the relapses are, are more and more frequent and more and more severe. And uh, finally, about, it was early 2008, 
there were many, I, I don't know how many times, inpatient treatment, outpatient, in-state, out-of-state, psychiatric stuff to do with the depression, halfway houses, counseling. Um, you know, you haven't lived until you've been fired by a marriage. Um, <laughs> but we were. And uh, finally in 2008, for the first time, I, I was afraid of him. You know, I had been afraid for him for a long, long time, but there finally was a night when I was afraid of him and called the police. And for me, that was it. And uh, after some, some drama and, and some scary and, and turbulent months, um, the relationship, I, I can't say that it ended. After 20 years, I was not able to slam the door and just sit, you know, end it. But, but we did find a way to stay in touch and to, and to find ourselves on good terms. And, and that's a gift. And then, in April of this year, Jim died. Um, I got a telephone call uh, that he had had a massive stroke. And here's a God thing. Uh, they called and said he had a stroke, he wasn't going to pull through. And a few days later, they took his breathing tube out and he was able to convey to them to call me. And, and they called me at work and held the phone up to his ear and we were able to, to have a few words together and to get clear. And um, what a God thing. And he died two days later. So, you know, in that case, um, it was the perfect amend. It was exactly what it was supposed to be. And it was a, a tremendous gift, to be clear with that. So afterwards, and, and don't get me wrong, it was sad. There was plenty of crying and, and getting over all that. But for all of my searching for the woulda, shoulda, couldas, there weren't any. There was really no regrets for what had happened in the past few years or, or leading up to that or even in that last week. Um, that's, that's God. You know, what an amazing thing. And for the first time, actually, after that, where I would actually use the word serenity to how I felt. And I never would have expected that. So, all this stuff is going on, healing, relationships, life is, is getting good. So where does that leave me today? It leaves me with myself. And I'm back full circle to working on my relationship with me. That onion keeps getting peeled, and I come to new levels of having to, to believe that I actually am worthy of self-care. Um, I thought I'd work that out, but it's, it's back again in different ways, and I just have to keep working on it. About a year and a half ago, I started going through a period of lots of feelings, a lot of anger and a lot of doubt and sadness and joy, and was completely perplexed by it. I talked to my therapist, who, you know, kind of said, well, after so many years of, of trying to manage your feelings, you're finding a place where you can feel them. And, and that, was, that was nice. And, and then I talked to my sponsor about it, and basically his response was, how is your prayer life? And that brought me exactly to what the issue was, and what I'm working on right now is my 11th step. It's, it's really, really working on that conscious contact with my higher power. You know, I, 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 I do pray and meditate every morning. I pray throughout the day. I do service, which I, I can't say enough about the changes that makes, even if I whine about it, and I do. Like, I can tell you, I'm going to walk out tonight, and I'm going to say, I'll never do that again. You know, I do it every time. 
think my sponsor was kind of talking to Sandy. But, um, you know, I'm doing that. I read the literature a lot. Um, I, I go to three meetings a week. I sponsor people. I, you know, I'm doing all the right stuff, so why am I, why is this happening? And if I'm really honest with myself, I've got to, to admit that it's really easy just to go through the motions. And that's what I have to guard against, especially in that conscious contact thing. I can read the daily readers, I can do the prayers, it's my rope now, and only I know if I'm really seeking conscious contact and doing what I need to do. When I am, things are really good. When I'm not, I go off the rails like real fast. So that's what I'm working on now. Um, taking care of myself physically, it's a lot better than it was, believe me, and yet things pop up and I'm like, um, it's just easier to deny it or to put it off. It's just me. You know, I'll deal with that next week. And suddenly, months have gone by and I haven't, um, you know, dealt with these things. And, uh, and then by not doing it, then shame comes in. I'm so ashamed that I haven't dealt with this. So then I put it off some more. So self-care, physically, spiritually, emotionally, um, that's what I'm working on. And do I like myself? Today, most of the time, yeah, I do. There's still that little voice, though, that tells me that I'm not good enough. Now and then, and I and I have to be aware of that and um, and kind of question it. And thank God I have the tools of the program. I have meetings. I have a sponsor. I have service. I have all the things so that that voice doesn't get to take over. And I can be aware of it and do take some contrary actions to let it go because I am worth this recovery. And if I do surrender to the spiritual discipline, my life continues to be transformed. And that's why I keep coming back. Thanks.